addiction in every case, whether it's the severe addiction of the heroin addicts that I dealt with or the respectable addictions of the workaholic, these are always based in trauma. That is physician, author, and addiction medicine specialist Gabor Mate. And this is the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody, what's going on? How are you? It is Rich Roll. This is my podcast. Welcome. Thank you for tuning in. I greatly appreciate it. What do we do here? Well, each week I sit down with the rule breakers, the paradigm breakers, the people that are pushing the boundaries, who are moving things forward in the world of health, nutrition, diet, science, technology, basically people who inspire me to do and be better. And that's kind of the theme, the underlying theme behind all of this, to help all of us unlock and unleash our best most authentic self. Uh, thanks so much to all of you guys who have been spreading the word about the podcast. It really means a lot to me. Uh, if you haven't done so already, take a moment, give us a review on iTunes. That really helps us out a lot, ironically, for some bizarre reason in terms of the whole iTunes algorithm thing. Uh, and thank you for using the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases. Greatly appreciate that as well. It doesn't cost you anything extra, uh, just a really cool, easy, simple way to support this mission. Thank you so much to everybody who has made that a practice. <laughs> I just got off a plane uh, from Europe, from Paris. I'm in Boston right now. I'm giving a speech in like an hour at the Boston Veg Fest. I can't tell if it's three o'clock in the afternoon or three o'clock in the morning. I'm so upside down in terms of time. Uh, so I just thought I would take a moment and record the intro to this week's podcast in my hotel room here in Boston. You can hear the sirens outside and perhaps the cleaning staff outside my door, not the quietest environment to record, but hey, we're going with it, right? And I'm just happy and proud to uh, share with you today's conversation. Uh, this one uh, I've been anticipating for quite some time. I'm really excited about it. The amazing, world-renowned, best-selling author, lecturer, and addiction medicine specialist, Dr. Gabor Mate on the show today. Uh, this guy has really shifted my perspective on addiction, drug addiction in particular, behavior addiction, uh, through his amazing uh, best-selling books. He is a guy who's on the cutting edge of addiction medicine research with some really fascinating, somewhat controversial, uh, but I think quite revelatory ideas about the nexus, in particular, the nexus between early childhood development uh, and drug and behavior addictions later in life. And I'm going to get into it a little bit more in a minute, but first... We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, 
all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem. A problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. All right, Gabor Mate, uh, very excited to have this gentleman on the show today. Um, I've been an admirer and a follower for some time. Uh, who is he? Well, he's a physician, a renowned speaker, best-selling author, and very distinguished and sought-after, and at times controversial, expert in the conversations that swirl and revolve around drugs, addiction, stress, childhood development, treatment, and therapy. This is a guy with over 20 years of medical practice in family and palliative care, uh, a guy who has decades of intimate firsthand experience working with and treating super hardcore drug addicts, people that are also often challenged by things like mental illness and HIV. 
He is also the best-selling author of a number of books on addiction, early childhood development and trauma, attention deficit disorder, and the relationship between stress and disease. I'm going to put links up to all of these books in the show notes, so definitely go to check that out. His most recent award-winning book is called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction. Uh, This book was a number one bestseller in Canada and absolutely revelatory for myself. Uh, It changed my life. And I think it, it has the potential to have that impact on anybody who experiences addiction firsthand or has close ones in their life who suffer, which is pretty much everybody these days. Uh, I find Dr. Mate's insights really compelling, specifically his reliance on cutting-edge science as well as case studies and his own personal experience to explore the idea that the source of addictions is not to be found in the genes, but originates instead in the early childhood environment, that addiction is complex, that there is no quick fix, and that we should be advocating for a more compassionate approach to addicts, addiction, and treatment. Dr. Mate is a super busy guy. It took a little bit of effort to lock him down for this interview. Uh, He was gracious enough to grant me one hour, and so I made the trip up to Vancouver uh, just to do the interview, and I'm really glad I did. Uh, I loved meeting him. I loved talking to him, and I really hope that I made the best of this opportunity for you guys. So without further ado, enjoy my conversation with Dr. Gabor Mate. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time. I know you're a busy guy. Um, I've been wanting to sit down with you for quite some time, so I really appreciate it. I'm fascinated by your work. Um, You've been an inspiration to me in helping to understand or better understand my own uh, uh, travails and and, uh, struggles and triumphs through addiction, and uh, your work is important, so thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thank Um, you. I thought we could start out out with uh, kind of explaining a little bit about um, before we get into. There's so many things I want to talk about, but just you know, in reference to your book in the realm of hungry ghosts, you have such a beautiful poetic way that you open it um, in explaining what that title means uh, in the context of the the Buddhist wheel of life. So, could you sort of elaborate on that? Yeah. So, in some Buddhist cosmologies. Uh, we're seen as cycling through six realms in our lives as human beings. There's the human realm, which is our ordinary selves. You might say our everyday selves. Uh, There's the animal realm, which is our drives, our our appetites, our urges, Mm -hmm. our sexuality, our need to eat, and so on. There are other realms, including the hell realm, which is that of suffering, rage, despair, terror, all the uncomfortable emotions that humans can experience to the nth degree. Mm-hmm. There are other realms, but the hungry ghost realm is one in which the creatures are depicted as ones with small, tiny mouths, scrawny necks, so very narrow gullets, and huge, empty bellies. So they can never get enough. So they're always hungry. And they're ghosts. They're always like they're sort of haunting their lives, looking for fulfillment from the outside, but never being able to achieve it, of course. And that's the realm of addictions. Yeah, it's it's so haunting and specific and perfectly captures, you know, I think what my experience has been, you know, that 
that empty cavernous black hole that you're constantly feeding and yet can never be satiated. You know, what's interesting is I'm just rereading for the, I don't know how many time, Dante's Inferno. Uh-huh. And Dante begins his journey uh, by being stuck, being lost, and barring his way from getting back onto the right path is this ravenous she-wolf that the more she eats, the hungrier she gets. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so this... Uh, uh, image of the hungry creature insatiable as being in the way of our, our spiritual growth and ourselves mm-hmm. is is obviously universal right because Dante is coming from a medieval Christian perspective but, right 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 but he, he's talking about the same thing and the, and the very first uh the second circle of hell in Dante, uh, as people suffer uh, because of their karmic accumulation on earth, are people who are gluttonous. Mm-hmm. And because they put all their attention on trying to feed themselves mm-hmm. rather than on... From the external. From the outside. So that th- this idea of the suffering that we create for ourselves by seeking satisfaction, fulfillment, and satiation from the outside. Yeah. It's absolutely universal. Yeah, and, and kind of taking that image um, and and lining it up against the people that you will see, like if you've ever experienced being around, you know, hardcore addicts, that hollowness of the eyes, and, you know, you have amazing pictures in your book that really capture, you know, what that, what that is like. Like you can just, you, you, you know, that sort of, explanation from the Buddhist wheel is so apropos to that real life experience of, of what you see if you go to Skid Row or do the work that you do and the people that you interact with. Well, and not only Skid Row. I mean, yeah. I don't know if you ever looked at our prime minister recently, but he's got, <laughs> he's got, he's got hollow dead eyes as well. Yeah, uh, and it's interesting how it's become like this sort of fodder for the internet and a, a sort of meme and a joke but you know it's really it's it's quite tragic because meanwhile this guy's on a you know he's on a march towards death yeah you know but it but really my my contention is that we enter the hungry ghost realm and i think we all do mm-hmm. depending when and for how long and to what degree but we all do it's our escape from the hell realm Mm-hmm. So that if if we didn't go there, we'd be in hell. Right. So it's it's it's, it's a desperate and unsuccessful um, attempt to to uh, overcome the suffering of hell. Right, and I think that that kind of dovetails nicely into you know really a foundational aspect of your work, which is refra- reframing the question around addiction, uh, and instead of asking, you know, why the addiction asking you know why the pain and and yeah. this sort of more expansive perspective on what addiction is so maybe elaborate on on your perspective of of what's wrong with our kind of conventional wisdom around the idea of addiction and and where your kind of philosophy and ideas come in well traditional wisdom around addiction uh is either the legalistic one that has it as a bad choice that people make from which they have to be deterred by means of severe punishment hence we got the so-called criminal justice system which by the way i think is a good title it is a criminal system the justice system is criminal <laughs> the, the the way it treats people well specifically addicts sort of trauma further traumatizing the people that are most traumatized well, that's the whole point 
yeah, and who make up a large percentage so of the jail population. So in Canada, it's not surprising, uh, and, and the same things in the states. Uh, uh, in Canada, 30% of our jail population is First Nations origin, mm -hmm. whereas Aboriginal make up 5% of the Canadian population. Mm -hmm. So we're taking the most traumatized people and we're jailing them, and we think that's justice. Yeah, what, there's like crazy statistics in Saskatchewan, right? Well, in, in the Prairie provinces, it's even higher. Yeah, it's, oh. it's like 60, 70, 80% of the people in jail are natives. They're 10%, 15% of the population. Right. Uh, now, the point, though, is that that's the legalistic view, that addiction is a choice, and people need to be punished when they engage in addiction-related behave, mm. uh, addiction behaviors. They're very addiction being illegal. Now, the other um, perspective that seems different is that it's a, addiction is a brain disease that you largely inherit, so it's not your fault because you can't help what genes you inherit, but it's a disease of the brain that arises in the brain, partly for genetic, partly for other reasons. Um, and what both of those perspectives share, though, as different as they are, what they share is that in neither case are we looking at people's life histories. And we're not looking at social history or, 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 or the history of a country or a nation. So who are the populations that are most severely affected and what happened to them? And who are the individuals that are most severely affected and what happened to them? Now, my perspective is that um, addictions are attempts to soothe pain in every case. In fact, the drugs are specifically painkillers, cocaine, numbs and nerve endings, opiates, heroin, these are painkillers, alcohol is a painkiller, cannabis is a painkiller. Mm -hmm. uh, crystal meth diverts you from the experience of emotional suffering by making you feel more alive and excited temporarily. So it's always not why the addiction, as you said, but why the pain. Keith Richards... Uh, when he was talking about his heroin ha habit in his book, uh, Life, which is his autobiography, he said, and I'm almost quoting him verbatim, he said, the contortions we go through just not to be ourselves for a few hours. Now, why would people not want to be themselves? Because they're not comfortable in their own skins. Mm -hmm. Why are they not uncomfortable in their own skins? Because they suffered in their own skins at some point when they couldn't help it. So what I'm saying is that addiction in every case, whether it's the severe addiction of the heroin addicts that I dealt with, or the respectable addictions of the workaholic, mm -hmm. or I'm probably free to mention that you, you talked about your own addiction at some point to extreme endurance sports, and, and, and uh, these are always based in trauma. Mm -hmm. So any attempt to escape the present moment has to do with discomfort that we incurred as children. And there are degrees of discomfort, degrees of trauma, but fundamentally addiction is always an attempt to escape suffering. Mm -hmm. So it's not the problem. The addiction is not the problem. The addiction no, the is... Addiction is the, so the, the, the manifestation of the, the addiction is the solution to the problem. It's an attempt. And it works a, until it doesn't work it, anymore. It, it works temporarily. That, in fact, that's my definition of addiction. You know, it's a temporary relief, pleasure, uh, craving that is satisfied momentarily but creates negative consequences in the long term and you can't give it up. That's what an addiction is. But yeah, that's what it is. It's an attempted solution. It's not the primary problem. Mm -hmm. And so to say that addiction is a primary brain disease, which is the official medical perspective that I was trained in, misses the whole point. But then again, the medical profession notoriously does not understand trauma. 
Well, it's not. It's its focus isn't directed in that in that in that locosphere, I suppose. You know? Well, but only as a as a as an artifact of denial, because the research is totally clear. Like it's not. Mm-hmm. It's not that I'm giving you personal insights. I mean, I am, but these insights are very much also supported and grounded in. Um, vast body of literature and whether we're talking about addiction or cancer we can, you can look back to negative childhood experiences and, 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 and so that but I'm telling you I lecture to medical students and in all the years of medical school nobody ever talks to them about trauma they don't yeah. hear the word trauma yeah, 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 can you yeah, believe yeah. that? Yeah. that in 2015 students at UBC don't hear the word trauma unless I say it to them in the one lecture that I give them in five years and four years and the same thing is true in large universities in the states as well so that the denial of trauma is endemic to medical practice and in this society Mm-hmm. Well, I want to get into all the childhood development stuff uh, and, and, and the sort of traumas that that uh, you know incite this kind of behavior uh, yeah. in so many people. But before we do that, I think it's worth kind of exploring, um, you know, the more expansive idea of definition uh, that you <coughs> adhere to, in the sense that you know our dialogue around. Uh, addiction and addiction disease really is focused on substance, right? But on yeah. some level, uh, it can be argued, and I know that you argue that addiction really is a much more, uh, you know, mass cultural societal issue that can be applicable not just substances, but transcend substances to any kind of behavior pattern that yeah, and I'm provides not the, that dopamine release and, and ultimately negative consequences in your life. Yeah, and I'm not the first one to raise that point. The mm-hmm. point was raised decades ago uh, that, that addiction is, uh, the drug addiction is one particular manifestation, but that really, uh, you can be addicted to sex, obviously, gambling, a whole lot, a whole lot of respectable things like work and the sports. Anything that and, takes you out of the moment and provides exactly. that temporary relief. Now, w- what I have done in this book is brought together the scientific evidence for the first time that that not only is this true psychologically, it's also true even physiologically. So that if you look at the brains of sex addicts or shopping addicts or food addicts, it's the same circuits that are involved mm-hmm. as are involved in drug addiction. So even on a level of physiological changes in the brain we're looking at the same changes just as some people use and need chemicals to achieve those changes other people get it through behaviors but the gambler is still after a dopamine hit dopamine being the incentive motivation chemical Mm -hmm. he's not after the money because if it was about the money he would quit after he won his first jackpot right but it's about actually the dopamine hit that he gets, that temporary state of elation and excitement that he gets when he's engaged in the activity. So all, all, all addictions, whether they're behaviors or substances or whatever they are, they serve the same psycho- psychological no, um, purpose of escape from suffering and pain, discomfort with the self, and they activate the same brain circuits mm-hmm. with the same neurochemicals. Mm-hmm. So there's only one universal addiction process. Drug addiction being a small, small manifestation of that. Right. And because it's so divorced from logic and rational thinking, I think that's what prevents a lot of people from really truly understanding it and, and why the conversation around it has to do with judgment and shame and criminology. Well, I think if you want to explore that <laughs> minefield, we can. Uh, I think uh, on the individual level, the judgment and the um, disdain for drug addicts is actually um, well expressed by Jesus when he says, 
don't be a hypocrite, he says. That's the word he uses. He says, uh, before you try to remove the sliver from your brother's eye, remove the pole from your own eye. Mm-hmm. And so what it is, is that when there's something we don't like about ourselves, then um, we'll look at that same thing in somebody else and reject it and, and imagine that we're different. So the workaholic businessman, or the workaholic doctor for that matter, uh, or the shopaholic man or woman. Mm-hmm. The guy who spends $8,000 on CDs. CDs in a week. I've heard of people like that. <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, they, will, they like to think of themselves as superior to, to the drug addict. And yet the dynamic is the same, which is being in the grip of a compulsion that you can't control and that has negative consequences. And you don't have the power, at least you perceive that you don't have the power, to, um, to regulate yourself. And so we see that in somebody else. And it's so easy then to look at the externals, which is that somebody's in a back alley in the downtown east side of Vancouver shooting up with heroin or cocaine. Oh, they're different from the rest of us. No, they're not. Mm-hmm. They're only different in uh, their expression of their addiction. And they're also different in their social economic uh, background often and also of course in the degree of trauma that they experience as children mm-hmm. well let's talk about backgrounds and 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 you know your perspective on the root of addictive behavior patterns uh, that start to form and take place in early childhood development and the experience or the environment or the child rearing um, you know habitat of a young person that sure. begins actually in fetus according to how you're how you're looking at this well i have to emphasize again that yes it's according to how i look at it but it's not a personal view mm-hmm. i'm just talking about the research literature i'm talking about the evidence so what we know is that already in utero the emotional states of the mother affect the neurological and development of the infant so when mothers are highly stressed that infant is experiencing a lot of stress hormones uh, reaching him or her through the umbilical cord. And that interferes with healthy brain development. And then when the child is born into a situation of stress, uh, many more things happen that further affects brain development so that the first fact to to really recognize here, which is again, is not taught in the medical schools Mm -hmm. yet, even though scientifically it's not even vaguely controversial anymore, is that the brain develops an interaction with the environment. So when we talk about addiction as a brain disease, yes, there's truth to that, but what shapes the brain is the environment. And the necessary condition for healthy brain development is non-stressed parents who can really connect with the child. Mm -hmm. So you can see in our society why so many people are affected, because how many parents are Mm non-stressed? How many parents? How many parents have the kind of support that traditional societies used to provide? The clan, the tribe, the extended family, where the child is always around adults or looking after him. You know, not that I want to romanticize the past or, or nor that we can go back to it, but we've lost something. Mm-hmm. And so, in this society, which is so disconnected, alienated, parents are if, even if they're together, and forty percent of the time they're not. But even if they are, they're both having to go to work. They're both under severe strain economically very often. Relationship stresses, um, the spiritual emptiness in people's lives. Kids are being born, uh, born into situations that no longer support healthy brain development. If on top of that, they're actually abused, which is what happens to uh, 
most severe addicts, specific abuse in a certain form of physical beating, sexual exploitation, abandonment, neglect, emotional torment, that plays havoc, not only with the personality development, not only does it give you a lot of pain that later you have to just soothe somehow, but it also distorts your brain development. Mm -hmm. And then, so now you have the template for addiction. Right, and so, I mean, what happens specifically? Some sort of... Um, you know, emotional defense mechanism uh, is cultivated in the brain chemistry that that leads to you know repressing that that painful experience. Or how does that work actually? Well, okay. So let's separate emotional experiences and defenses from physiological chemical events. Okay. So on a chemical level, take a substance like cocaine or crystal meth, or nicotine, or caffeine. These are stimulants. They elevate the level of a chemical in the brain, which we referred to already, called dopamine. And dopamine is the incentive, vitality, excitement molecule. Mm -hmm. Without that, we're listless, bored, um, amotivated, disinterested, inert. So the dopamine circuitry is crucial to human life and human motivation. But the development of the dopamine circuitry depends on the presence of a nurturing parent. Mm -hmm. So if you take infant monkeys and they measure their dopamine level one week after separation from their mother, their dopamine levels are significantly diminished. And dopamine receptors are diminished when there's a lot of stress around. Mm -hmm. and you can, you can, or you can isolate monkeys or rats and put them into an isolation cage and then measure the dopamine rece receptors a month later, it's significantly diminished. So the, so the brain is responsive to the environment and especially in early childhood. So there's the chemical effects. That's not the only one, but that's one of the major ones. But then there's the psychological defenses so that a child under severe emotional stress has got very limited resources to deal with that. Uh, they can't fight back, they can't escape, and they can't change the situation. So now the brain kicks in with its automatic defenses. One of them is emotional shutdown. Mm -hmm. So now you no longer have, feel the emotion because they're too painful. But if you don't feel emotion, life becomes very dull and boring. Now you have to do drugs to feel better. Right. Um, or you might tune out as a way of... Uh, not experiencing the stress. Mm -hmm. So you adapt by tuning out. But if that gets programmed into your brain, later on you've got this condition called ADD. Right. Which is characterized by extreme right. tuning out. Right, right, you right. Know, so, so what happens is that these early defenses help kids survive the immediate stress but become sources of dysfunction later on. Right. Yeah, and I, I have people in my life that I know that come from you know a background of, of pretty significant emotional stress and, and anytime I observe them in a scenario in which any kind of conflict even if it's very modest they'll detach it deta it's almost like they go into yeah. a fugue state exactly and you can't even reach them and it, they're yeah. they're trying to protect themselves well they're not trying to do anything they're not even they're, doing it it's not conscious no yeah. the brain is doing it <laughs> so, so, so the brain goes into automatic defense mode mm -hmm. which is programmed in childhood right so uh, the point again being, as, as you said, that early adaptations become sources of pathology and dysfunction later on. Mm -hmm. so, there, so we have to keep in mind that this is happening at least on two levels. There's the, there's the brain physiological level, which I've already talked about, and then there's the psycho-emotional level. 
and the two go along together. Mm-hmm. And we can also talk about the relational level, like what happens to people that are hurt in their relationships, is that either they withdraw from relationship at the first sign of problems, or they desperately throw themselves into a relationship, hoping to be rescued, mm-hmm. one or the other. Now they become sex and relationship addicts. Right. Um, it happens on a spiritual level, where I think increasingly we can agree that human beings have a need for meaning, at least in life, a need for connection, for belonging, a larger sense than just the isolated ego. Well, when you're hurt or when you're traumatized or just when you suffer, you tend to isolate and you lose that connection. And uh, so there's, whether it's physiological, psychological, emotional, physiological, spiritual, relational, mm-hmm. and, and you have to look at addiction on all these levels, you're hobbled, you're uh, disabled, you're impaired. Mm-hmm. And then the addiction is a desperate attempt to avoid the impacts of all that. Right. And trying to better understand, uh, you know, my own addiction and journey through sobriety um, and kind of taking, you know, you know the, the information and the wisdom that you provide. You know, I look back on my childhood development and my background and, mm-hmm. and you know, certainly it's an easy case when you can, you know, in the, in the example that you raised of, of, you know, hardcore drug addicts that almost invariably come from some form of abuse, whether emotional or physical. In my case, I was raised by two loving parents that are still together. There's no, uh, you know, great, um, <clears throat> indicia of alcohol, alcoholism in my genetic background. Uh, and so, um, I can't like it's been challenging for me to play the victim or or to I'm sorry to place blame on any particular person well, or my so, parents. So, so it's also an uncomfortable feeling to even yeah. examine that. Um, you know, you certainly I could say, well, my parents you, were stressed. Or do, do you, you know, want do you want to? Examine? <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes my parents listen to the podcast. <laughs> well, so what? Yeah. So okay, but but look, first of all, how you phrase it. Uh, you said, first of all, play the victim. Okay, now that's a telling phrase. Okay. In what, in what way? You're distancing yourself from something. Okay. You're actually denying your own vulnerability. It's not a question of playing victim. It's a question of what happened to you when you were vulnerable. Secondly, you talk about avoiding blaming parents. Who the heck wants to blame parents? I don't blame parents. Mm-hmm. I screwed up my kids, but I don't blame myself. I did my very best. I was a loving parent. You know, but well, I would think on some level, every parent, no parents are perfect, right? Well, They're all the like sort of, you know, creating emotional. Yeah, stress but for but children. I'm telling you, but I'm telling you very specifically. Uh, and I just had this conversation with somebody else before I, I came here. It usually takes me less than five minutes, usually only three, uh-huh. to show somebody how they suffered when they didn't think they did, and that's not because I make up anything, but it's because people protect themselves from their own suffering as a way of protecting their relationship with their parents. Mm-hmm. And so you have a fear of alienating your parents. Of course. As a result of which, perhaps you haven't delved into your own experience deeply enough to really understand it yet. Mm. Now, you know, whether you want to do that here on air, it's totally up to you. But I'm just saying you, that's the dynamic that I perceive all the time. And I'm also telling you, it's not about blaming your parents. It's not about denying that they loved you. It's not about denying that they did their very best. Mm-hmm. We're not interested in 
them at all, actually, in this conversation as either good guys or bad guys. We just understood what was the experience of the child mm-hmm. and what was the impact of that experience on the child. This question of either being victims or blaming others, I don't speak that language. I'm not totally interested in, 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 in either, victim, or either seeing people as victims or as blaming anybody. Right. Well, well, let's play this out. So, I mean, I certainly kind of identify with, with uh, you know, the hungry ghost idea, as I said earlier. And, you know, I was a kid who was always pretty sensitive. And, and, okay, so you're sensitive. You know, yeah, so what does that mean? To, so what does that mean to be sensitive? It means that I'm easily uh, impacted by external stimuli. That's exactly that what it is. my emotional well-being. That's exactly what it is. So sensitive comes from the Latin word sincere to feel. So the sensitive child feels more. So less has to happen. Mm-hmm. If if you if I touch you on the shoulder right now with my fingers tapped you lightly you'd have no pain at all but if your shoulder was bare with a burn on it so your nerve endings were close to the surface so you were thin skinned and if I tapped you with the same force now what would you feel mm-hmm. pain of course severe pain and the external stimulus was the same to anybody looking at it from the outside yeah. what happened but what happens is that you're very sensitive okay that's the genetic factor. It's the only genetic factor, by the way, okay? So, so nobody's genetically mm, condemned to addiction, but some people are born more sensitive than others. Yeah, so, there so can, can be a predisposition, but not a predeterminism. And that predisposition is a sensitivity. It's not actually a predisposition to mm. a specific addiction either. It's just a sensitivity. But carry on. So you were a sensitive child. So, okay. Yeah. And, and you know, some of the tropes that you hear in, in recovery, you know, always feeling like everyone else had a road roadmap for life and, and kind of feeling isolated and alone and having difficulty making friends and okay, connecting okay, with people. I, okay. Isolated and alone. Ever feeling, ever remember feeling sad or unhappy as a kid? Of course. Who did you speak to about that? Uh, probably nobody. Oh, don't give me the probably. Yeah, well, I mean, I, it's been a while. You know, I would think that, let me think about it. Sounds that. like nobody. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was definitely a kid lost in, lost in my own thoughts and in my own world. Okay, well, so stay with me for a minute. Mm-hmm. You don't have children yet, I take it? No, I do have kids. Okay, you do have kids. Okay, yeah. great. How old are they? I have two daughters that are eight and uh, 11, and I have two stepsons. Okay, so you tell me. If they're feeling sad and lonely, who do you want them to talk to? I want them to talk to me and my and my wife. Right. And if you found out through some third source that your children were sad and lonely, but they hadn't talked to you, how would you understand that? Uh, it would be heartbreaking. No, no, but I'm not talking. Yes, it would be, but how would you explain it? How would you understand it? How would I understand what they're going through? How would you understand why, haven't, why they haven't talked to you? I think I would understand them as feeling unsafe in having that kind of dialogue. And how does a child feel when they're unsafe with their parents? When they feel unsafe, they feel uh, anxious. Yeah. Uh, they feel... Um, hurt? Hurt, hurt, fearful, perhaps. Okay, that's your childhood. Yeah. If we say nothing more, you can see how a sensitive child would be deeply hurt by that situation. So by the time you have recollection, you had already learned that your parents on the emotional level were somehow not quite available to you. As much as they loved you, they didn't know how to make because whatever was happening for them, they were stressed, they were distracted, whatever was going on. But that doesn't matter. We're not blaming them. We're just saying that 
they couldn't give you that what you needed. Right, and and I'm feeling like all this extreme discomfort right now because I love my parents. Oh, you why know? would you and not? I know that they did the very best that, that they. And could I grant you that. that. And I grant you that. <laughs> and and I grant you that. Uh-huh. But but we're not again. We're not putting them on trial. We're just talking about what your situation was. Mm-hmm. And, and and what was the impact of that situation? Now, anybody ever bully you as a kid? Yeah, I definitely had that experience. Okay, how old were you when you were bullied? I think a lot of that started when I switched schools from a school that was relatively nurturing to my um, proclivities to kind of a, a, a macho kind of um, sports-focused school where I felt very unsafe. Throughout, from like seventh grade to twelfth grade. So you felt bullied there. Yeah. Who did you speak to about that? I did talk to my mom. About How soon? There, I would I would speak to her after any kind of incident would occur at school. And what would happen when you did? Uh, she would comfort me, but I would return to the school. Okay. Now, if your kid was bullied on a chronic basis, and they complained to you about it, what would you like to do about it? Oh, I mean, I I would do anything. I would jump in front of a train. I would I would probably change their environment. Okay. So you learned that it was futile to complain. Hmm. Again, you were left alone with it. Guess what you became? <laughs> an, an endurance athlete. Yeah. A macho endurance athlete who drove himself. Right. I mean, I think yeah. my first uh, my first drug of choice was I discovered the the sport of swimming uh, when I was yeah. like twelve or fourteen, and yeah. and that was my comfort. You know, underwater. Okay. Yeah. I even wrote my college essay about it. Like the, the that was the safe place that I could go underwater. Where, yeah, where nobody could get to me. Okay. Which further isolated me, of course. I mean, but I had friends and I had a community there. That I, I, got, I, I got it. I don't know if you read about this woman who died a few months ago, a, a free diver, a Russian woman. Did you read that story? I did, yeah. yeah. Do you know what she said? No, I don't. Well, I, it, it's on my cell phone here somewhere because I copied it out. She said that underwater, you feel at one with the universe and your mind stops and you're just totally present. But she had to go there to achieve that state. Mm-hmm. Now that state is the state that we all strive for, under or over water. She could only get it underwater. She ended up dying. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not cautioning people against free diving. I'm just saying that she too was looking for it. It wasn't just the physical thrill. She was actually looking for spiritual release. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're describing as well. Yeah, there's no yeah. question that, that that is what that was about. Of course, unconsciously at the time. Of course not consciously. And I, and I was being rewarded for it, and so then I would, yeah. I would double down on my commitment to that. Yeah, and I wasn't the athlete that you were, so I got rewarded for my intellectual skills. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that's what I built up, you know, so, and, 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 and being helpful. And that's your safe place. And that's my safe place. That's also my addiction then, you know, thinking too much helping people and all that, you know. So we all use what we've got in order to uh, somehow divert ourselves from our pain. And, and, and so, look, what I'm saying to you is that, and I'm not going to ask you more questions about your childhood, but can you possibly get that you've already revealed enough to see why you might have been in emotional pain as a child? Yes, of course. Okay, that's all. I would surmise that most children uh, experience some kind of emotional pain growing up. It's unavoidable. So what is the distinguishing factor 
it, it, it is avoidable, but not in this society. Mm-hmm. You know, I right. mean, there are societies that don't hurt their kids like the way we do. Yeah, but, and there's but, a whole in- interesting conversation that we can have about materialism and toxic culture that I know yeah, you speak to. Quite, my next book. Right there, but, yeah. but, but in any case, you're quite right. In our society, very few escape that, which is why addictions are so rife in our society. So we're not saying there's anything uniquely horrible about your experience. On the contrary. Mm-hmm. A lot of people had it a lot worse if you want to compare suffering, which I don't believe in, by the way. But, but the point is that we're not, it's no point me coming to you. Now, you, could, you tell me, if at age 11 or age 6 you feel sad and lonely, and you come and say to me, Gabor, I feel sad and lonely, would it be any use for me to tell you, oh, don't worry about it. It's the same for everybody. Mm-hmm. Is that what you need to hear? No, that just that will further drive me into yeah. deeper isolation and despair. Which is what you're doing to yourself right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to, to say that uh-huh. everybody's like that. Well, so what is everybody like that? Everybody's got their own particular experience. And we have to honor the person's experience. Mm-hmm. All I'm saying is, that's not. yes, it's true that, 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 that children are often hurt or isolated and misunderstood in our society because we're so unconscious and we're so disconnected as a society and so harassed and harried and stressed as a culture. That's all true. But when it comes to understanding on any one particular human being, that's not meaningful. Mm-hmm. What is meaningful is what was their own particular experience. And if you're very sensitive, as I said earlier, less has to happen to create pain for you. Right, so would that be the distinguishing factor between somebody who uh, could have had the experience that I had and then goes on to be a social drinker or somebody who needs sort of temporary relief from time to time, but it doesn't become, uh, you know, it doesn't rise to the level of addiction where it, it creates negative consequences in their life and somebody like myself who, it, you know, I took it to the wall. Sensitivity could is certainly one of the factors for sure, but there could be other factors as well. Maybe that other somebody just had one person they could talk to who would actually understand mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. and validate them. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Right. You know, so community. Community or just even human contact with anybody. Right. You know, I mean, I say human contact. Not that you didn't have human contact, but I mean, validating. Somebody validating your experience and uh, what has been called a compassionate witness. So... As a matter of fact, I mean, as you well know from recovery, what makes the difference ultimately is not just one's own individual um, willpower and, uh, and, and determination, but also others who can listen to you compassionately mm-hmm. and validate your experience and not judge you. Yeah, I mean, my journey has been one <coughs> of, of trying to overcome my, my predisposition towards self-will and self-reliance to a place of surrender, right? Because when I track back over the course of my life, it's very easy for me to make an argument that everything that happened that was good growing up uh, or all the any accomplishment uh, that I was able to do was is a result of my work ethic and doubling mm-hmm. down and, mm-hmm. and being focused mm-hmm. to overcome whatever circumstance I was in to kind of get to the next level. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, addiction, my alcoholism was the first instance in which that no longer was applicable. And the mm-hmm. more that I tried to apply my self will to this problem, the deeper yeah. of a hole that I dug for myself. Right. Until I could, you know, because surrender. Uh, you know, as you will hear all the time, is so 
um, closely aligned with this idea of giving up, which is so antithetical to the way that I wanted to approach my life. So it was a it was a journey to get to that place of willingness in order to entertain a different way. Well, and and my point is that some people criticize the first step as you know admitting that you're powerless as you know why you're telling people that they're abused that they're mm -hmm. powerless. My point is the opposite, that it's when you admit that you're powerless that you gain power. Mm -hmm. That you actually, of when, course. You, when you actually get, get how it is. But why but, is it so difficult to understand that? Well, because, because the people who make that argument um, are still identified with their childhood vulnerabilities. Mm. And so I'm never going to make myself powerless again. They they think that powerlessness in that sense is 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 opens you up to being hurt. Mm -hmm. Where actually is, that surrender is actually the way of uh, out of the hurt. Right. But but let me come back to you just for a moment. So this ethic that you had that I need to do this myself and I can do this and so on. Well, think about that. Do you want your kids to have that? No. How would you make sure that they don't? Uh, I would I would imagine by trying to help them to understand that uh, making your way in the world is an interdependent act, that the way, the path towards whatever your goal is or your dreams, your aspirations for your life is contingent upon the community that you cultivate. Okay, so that's intellectually true, but how will you, how will you um, support that? understanding in them i think by trying to help them foster uh an ethic of open communication and feeling with, safe with with communicating with who well with with myself and my wife first that's, and that, foremost that, that, and then their siblings and that, then extrapolating out from there that's the whole point so that's what you lacked and therefore we developed a coping mechanism if i can do this all by myself mm -hmm. no it is true that you want to foster self-reliance and uh, internal resilience and, 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 and initiative. That's true. But the pathway towards doing that is the same as the pathway towards fostering relational health, which is by giving that, the children the environment where they can actually feel listened to and validated and, 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 and uh, supported. And this is what so many of us didn't get. Mm -hmm. um, it might be interesting for you at some point to speak with your parents, and you know, if, if you know, depending on the relationship that you have with them, and say, "Okay, look, just tell me about your marriage when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Not never mind what you didn't do for me. Like I know you did your very best. I love you very much. I honor you. But tell me about your lives. Mm -hmm. What was it like for you?" Mm -hmm. What stresses were you under? What were you carrying from your own childhood? Yeah, I mean, I what can, was what was happening in your larger family? You know, what were the work stresses? Just what was, how was your relationship? You know, all the, all those questions. Yeah, I mean, I think in 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 my mother's case, she suffered a tremendous amount of trauma. Uh, okay. In 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 her life, she lost her father when she was still in college and then when i was very young uh she lost her brother in a car accident oh my god and okay now imagine a tremendous amount of pain in her life and and stress and, it, and it's manifested you know in stress and anxiety and and being somebody who is um uh very risk averse and okay. and i think that that manifested in my life as as a parent who was perhaps overprotective over, um, there's no such thing as overprotective. You can either be protective or not protective. What you're talking about is controlling. Mm. Okay? Now, that comes out of anxiety. 
she was anxious, so she wanted to protect you by controlling. But the, but the impact on you is loss of autonomy. And, uh, and just imagine your poor mother's state of mind when her brother dies. She just lost her father not that many years before. Now she's a relatively young mom, and she loses her brother in a car accident. And then she's got this small child to look after. Mm -hmm. what, what, what could be her state of mind? Right. I mean, it's informed her, her worldview. Uh, and I think that it, it has you know, made her kind of terrified of externalities that she can't control. Okay. But it also, just her state of mind. Would it be sadness, grief, maybe depression, a lot of stress? And that, and sadness, grief, depression, stress acts as a screen between the parents' love for the child and the child. Mm -hmm. And it's nothing that the, per, the, per, the, the parent is doing on purpose. So we know, for example, that postpartum depression is a significant risk factor for childhood developmental problems. It's got nothing to do with how much the mother loves the child, how devoted she is. It just, children pick up on their parents' emotions automatically and they imbibe, they absorb the parents' emotions and they think it's about them. So when my mother is sad, as my mother was, because of the situation, as I write about in the book, mm -hmm. in the Second World War, a Jewish family in Nazi-occupied Hungary, her grief and her unhappiness to the infant means that she's not happy with me. And so my self-esteem is undermined. Not because my mother didn't love me, she loved me fiercely and desperately. But just because children absorb and are shaped by the emotional states of their parents. Mm -hmm. And those emotional states are not deliberate on the part of the parent. I mean, your mother was not a grief-struck, grieving young mother because she wanted to be. Mm -hmm. But the fact yeah. that she was. And, 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 and furthermore, if you were living in a clan-based society where there's a lot of aunts, uncles, elders, neighbors, even living under the same roof, perhaps. Well, then that mother who has suffered that loss has got a lot of support. Right. And the impact of that one singular person on, on a young child's life is, is diminished and replaced in some part by other people that can pick up the slack and provide a tapestry of emotional support. This is exactly right. And that's why it takes a village. Yeah, it does. You know, we try to cultivate that with our with our kids too. We have a very much of a open house kind of situation with lots of people coming in and there's a lot of adults that are around our kids for that very reason. Wonderful. Yeah, which is Wonderful. great. And you know, we've moved away from that. It is yeah. true and it's as a society we have. You know, in this internet culture of seemingly never you know, being more connected than we are, we're we're lonelier and and, and more isolated than than ever. Yeah, right. so then we talk about well, why are yeah, so to go back to your original point. Yes, there are very few children in our society who are not significantly affected by these dynamics, regardless of the parents' best efforts. Mm -hmm. um, so, now, until we get conscious around it, and it sounds like you and your parenting have developed some consciousness, but most of us just most of us just sort of try and get by. You are just trying to pay the bills and yeah. keep you know put food on the plate. Yeah, and keep the relationship going and and. and do the right thing and we're not conscious of what we've lost as a society mm -hmm. 
and uh, and your own consciousness was probably gained at or through dealing with your own addictions. You're probably much more conscious as a parent. Oh, of course, and you know it's it's that that uh, adage of you know being the grateful alcoholic because it's yeah. it's catapulted me into you know a life based more on spiritual principles than maybe or perhaps I would have ever been introduced to you know but <clears throat> you know when I went away to college I went to the the other coast and uh, that's when I discovered drugs and alcohol and, yeah. and that was the solution that mm-hmm. wasn't the problem mm-hmm. that was what made me feel whole until you know it played itself out and took me to some dark places um, but you know as that kind of unfolded um, you know predictably that's where the shame and the low self-esteem and the self-judgment and all of that comes in as you start to bifurcate in, into this kind of double life existence that further isolates you uh, and alienates you from your community. I'm almost impelled to say that you were fortunate to have become an alcoholic because, you see, my addictions to work and to shopping, they're respectable ones. Mm-hmm. You don't suffer the consequences to the same degree so that you don't get the same wake-up call. Mm-hmm. No. I'm not wishing I was not being an alcoholic, but but actually, if I'm honest about it, sometimes when I meet people who've been through recovery from severe addiction, there's a sense of envy almost because they really have been forced by their intense suffering to go very deep with themselves. Well, and, pain, and, and, is, and, pain is the, the the only thing that really motivates people <laughs> to change their ways, right? So but, how much but, pain can you bear before? I know, but unfortunately, if it was only pain, there'd be a lot less suffering. It takes... More than just pain, but yeah, it's true. We, we, there's a Greek, uh, there's a line I'm reading in a, in a Greek play I, I was looking through recently where they say, we suffer into truth. Mm-hmm. We suffer into truth. And so the more intense the suffering, sometimes the deeper the appreciation of truth. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the spiritual teachers will tell you that. I'm reading Eckhart Tolle these days and mm-hmm. with, with a lot of mm, gratitude. And he talks about how, you know, Sometimes the suffering is so intense that it just burns away the ego, mm-hmm. and then you and then you, then you get the truth. Yeah, but I would say also I'm interested in your perspective on this. So so, you know, I get sober, and and my sobriety is buttressed by community and the twelve yeah. steps and the principles and the and yeah. the sort of work that I do uh, in that program, service oriented and and sort of living my life premised on these spiritual principles that have, you know, really given me this amazing life that I'm very grateful for. And yet at the same time, um, you know, I'm, you know, I'm certainly not cured. You know, it's, it's like having all of these things in, in place to, you know, keep me walking, you know, the correct path. Um, it's still, uh, a process. What would cured mean to you? Cured would mean that, uh, that, uh, the impulse to drink or use or to uh, try to check out of the present through any number of behavior patterns that are inconsistent with, you know, how I would like to live my life that create negative consequences no longer enter my consciousness. So you'd like to be a Jesus or a Buddha? <laughs> yeah. There's a high ambition. I would. I would. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, good luck with so, that one. So, I mean, yeah, but but, it, but I mean, kind of in, in brass tacks, uh, you know, day-to-day life, you know, gratitude is is a fleeting um, 
experience for me. You know, my default state is not gratitude. My default state is irritability, anxiety, yeah, my, judgment, frustration. Yeah, my, 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 my default state is irritability as well. Well, now look, what you're talking about now <clears throat> is, um, first of all, let's just um, eliminate the word cure here, okay? We're not talking about cure. We're talking about wholeness, okay? And uh, it just means you've got more work to do. So it's a question of how committed you are to the work. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I know for me, those are my default states as well. I can't help that. I can't help that that's my default state. I didn't create that. That's a consequence of experiences. What I can make a choice about is how I relate to all that and how I live my life and what structures, uh, supports, practices do I engage in that helps me deal with that irritability when it arises, that urge to check out when it arises. So that that's very much up to me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, this is my fourth book, and it's had tremendous response, and as have my others, and I, I, I travel a lot speaking all over North America and internationally. And very often people have said to me, boy, I wish I had read your book 30 years ago. And my joke always was, gee, maybe I should read it myself. Because on the one hand, I can say these things and teach people and help people, but there was this tremendous gap between my internal and personal life and what I can manifest on the stage or in a seminar room. And I can say now, but I'm 71. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I can say now that that gap is narrowing significantly. But that's because I'm actually doing the work. Yeah, and, the, uh, the aspiration is the commitment to the work and to yeah, the process, right? Yeah. So if, if you're doing the work, then inevitably it'll pay off. And it's not helpful to talk to yourself about it. It's not, not to talk about yourself as not being cured. You're not a piece of meat. You don't have to be cured. You know, you just need to integrate. Mm-hmm. And 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 uh, that's a lifelong process. And again, as Eckhart Tolle says, that for some people it happens as a sudden illumination. That's essentially what happened to him. But for more people, it's work. Mm -hmm. It's ongoing work. Yeah, I mean, self knowledge is insufficient. I could yeah. read your book cover to cover. I could read it every week for the rest of my life. Yeah. But if I don't extract from your book principles that uh, can translate into actions that I can take on a daily basis to narrow that gap, then then it's not really going to help me or well, anyone else, right? It's 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 the it's yeah. the practice. And I would point out another dimension there is that there's a difference between self-knowledge and knowledge about the self. So explain that. Well, you can know about yourself intellectually, but that wouldn't be self-knowledge. Self-knowledge is experiential where you actually experience your true self. That's self-knowledge. It's got nothing to do with the intellect. And uh, you're totally right. I could read all these wonderful books that I have over the years, many dozens. I could write these books full of insight and I'd say wisdom and science. That's not self-knowledge. That's knowledge about the self. And uh, it's, it's, it's a different uh, level of knowing because, you know, we have these different levels of knowing. There's the intellectual knowing, there's the intuitive knowing, and there's the experiential knowing. Mm -hmm. 
And and the deepest one is is the experiential one when you've actually yes, this is the self. Ah, here I am. And then even then that takes practice to maintain that space because the world so quickly robs you of it. You know, alcoholism and addiction are, are ciphers to compel one to, you know, face that and, and walk that path and, and undertake that journey. Yes. Um, but for, you know, I'm putting myself in the shoes of somebody who might be listening, who, who is not afflicted in that way, or at least not on a, I mean, in your mind, it's a spectrum. And, and they're, they're, level, afflicted, are, yeah, they're, they're afflicted in, in a different in, way, in a different way, <laughs> perhaps less severe. Um, the idea of experiential self-knowledge or you know what that journey would look like is a foreign concept to a lot of people like how does one even begin to crack the seal on what that means on a day-to-day basis well look i mean the buddha um when he sat under the bodhi tree and meditated all those days after having followed this or that practice of severe abstention or self-flagellation and spiritual exploration um, he was dealing with the problem of human suffering, which is not restricted to specific addicts only. It's a human condition because that disconnection from the self mm-hmm. happens to everybody and uh, everybody suffers. Now, we can cover up that suffering with the munificence of our consumer society and that's why the desperation, by the way. But... Right, the the great Henry David Thoreau quote: "The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation, and what right. is considered resignation is confirmed desper- desperation." Yeah, so I'm not sure that you're right about the listener who hasn't suffered addiction and afflicted in the same degree. People in all walks of life know know somehow, and they and, and they will even say, I, "I I just don't know myself. I don't know who I am. I don't know what's my purpose in life, and all that." So. Those are all states of disconnection from the self. Very common in our society. So I actually think a lot of people would understand what we're talking about, even if they haven't suffered uh, degrees of trauma and compensations for trauma, such as maybe you have or, or to the degree that I have. So in a, in a real-world context, the process of, of beginning to probe into um, you know, the deeper, more authentic self within... Um, you know what is the what is the practice of that? Um, by recognizing, well, I, again, I'm, since I'm reading Eckhart these days, I'll quote him. He says that mankind's greatest achievement is not um, our architecture and our science and our creations, but the recognition of our own insanity. So the first thing is you got to get that it's not working for you. Yeah. I mean, if if, if you don't get that. You just continue to tread the same. Well, there's so there's so many layers that have to be peeled back. I mean, we're we're immersed in you know, and this gets into toxic culture and materialism. Like the the society in which we live in is predicated upon these ideals that are, uh, in certain respects, you know, antithetical to uh, to this journey. You know, we're sort of fed this message of climbing the corporate ladder and, you know, uh, keeping up with the Joneses and and you know, in a competitive kind of um, accumulation uh, focused and prioritized way of living that is simply you know 
fomenting more suffering and further divorcing ourselves from that that true nature. Yeah. Well. So you I, have to be able to pierce that to even begin. I would think. Um. You just have to get that you're suffering. I mean, you just have to get that. That's the first thing. Uh-huh. If you don't know that you're suffering, you're not gonna pierce anything. You're not gonna look for anything. So uh-huh. the then you can start. And if you realize that you're suffering, then you can start asking the question why. And then you're gonna look at your own life and you look at society and and and, and everything else. But the, it's got to begin with uh, some sense that things ain't right with you. Now here's. Um, I can give you any number of quotes. Uh, the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying talks about how the selling of samsara, which is of illusion, is the major uh, function of our society. Mm-hmm. And here's Thomas Merton, who is a Catholic monk and spiritual teacher, uh, who wrote in 1948 or 50, something like this. He says, it is true that the materialistic society, the so-called culture that has evolved under the tender mercies of capitalism, has produced what seems to be the ultimate limit of worldliness. And nowhere, perhaps, except in the analogous society of pagan Rome, has there ever been such a flowering of cheap and petty and disgusting lusts and vanities as in the world of capitalism, where there's no evil that is not fostered and encouraged for the sake of making money. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, uh, and he talks about, you know, that we, we, we strain every human limit Every desire, every human desire to the limit, um, to create as many new desires and synthetic passions as possible, in order to cater to them with the products of our factories and printing presses and movie studios and all the rest. Mm-hmm. This is 60 years before the internet, you right. know, or 50 years before the internet, and so that we live in a society that 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 feeds off the hungry ghost. And so we, we keep creating. Nobody does this deliberately, although actually they do. They do. Yeah, they, they, I was, you know, was going to take issue uh, with that. Yeah. yeah, but you know what? But they can't create the hungry ghost. They can cater to it, but they can't create it. In other words, a Coca-Cola company might tell you that the greatest joy in the world is to drink a can of Coke, which is what they're telling you, that nothing means as much as drinking a can of Coke. Mm-hmm. But you have to be hungry ghost to believe it. Right, and that that and then comes in this the you know the persistence of this illusion that it will lead to your happiness is astonishing. And despite yeah. despite never reaching it, you think that this is the next time where it's actually going to work. Well, a, a, a doctor <laughs> friend of mine said that it's hard to get enough. It's impossible. It's difficult to get enough of something that almost works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing, right? If you can come up with that with that very product, yeah, then you will be a master of capitalism. Yeah, and 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 I kept thinking too. If only I achieve this, I attain that. If if my books sell this many copies, or if I'm on this program, you mm-hmm. know, or or if I buy this many compact this, then I'll be complete and happy. You know, right. it's always that next thing. You know, of and, course. And, of course. and by the way, and as a Buddhist teacher said. Um, just one more is the binding factor in the cycle of suffering. Right, 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 right. And and it leaves me wondering if Eckhart Tolle ever, uh, you know, checks his Amazon ranking, or has he transcended the the mortal coil in that regard? It'd be interesting I to mean, find. We out. all we all live in the world. It'd as be, does he? It'd be interesting to find out. 
my guess is that he would not be checking that. Yeah, I would imagine he does. That he, I mean, just the way I read him, and, and not just in his reading, but in, when, I, when I see him uh, in his videos and one time in person, um, he doesn't strike me that he needs to do that. And I, even for myself, I don't need to do it either. Not that I don't ever, mm-hmm. but it fluctuates. So the degree to which I'm impelled to do it depends on... Well, it's a barometer of your spiritual and emotional health. At that moment. Right. Exactly, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, right. so no, I don't think so. I don't think that he would. I'd be very much surprised if he did. Right. Um, well, we're, we're running out of time, and there's a couple things I still want to talk to you about. I mean, really kind of the, the core undercurrent of, of your message with respect to how we kind of you know treat and perceive addicts and, and addiction culture is really a cry for... Um, more empathy and love. And the idea that <clears throat> uh, man's natural state is one of empathy and love, right? And so when we were talking about um, how, you know, you and I share this this predisposition to irritability or, or anxiety or what have you. Um, programming. Yeah, it's this programming. I think I heard you in another interview saying it, uh, the, the idea of second nature came up. It's yeah. my second nature to be anxious, to be irritable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just let's, let's you know, dissect that phrase, second yeah. nature, because it implies that we have a first nature. Exactly. And then our first nature is according to all the scientific research or at least overwhelming scientific usage, is that our true nature is to be compassionate, to be uh, sharing, to be cooperative, um, to be loving, actually. None and, of which is championed in our, in our culture. Well, the opposite is championed, you know. And uh, so that is our first nature, and we suffer precisely because we're divorced from our first nature. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's that, it's that um, separation from that true state that is yeah. the, the, the kernel of suffering that gets fertilized. Yes. And so it also means that since it is our first nature and our true nature, even the word recovery, what does it mean? It means to find something. Right, to return to a natural state. Yeah, exactly. So the recovery actually is returning to who we actually are. Mm-hmm. But, but the who and the what that we are, that we got disconnected from. And that's what it means to recover. Mm-hmm. And that can be a lifelong process, but it's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. It's a worthy journey to undertake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah because yeah, it's yeah. not about, as with all journeys, it's not about, I, if you do it right, it's not about the destination. It, it's about the destination when you get there, but it's not about the destination. It's about each step along the way. And the willingness to undertake that step. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to keep generating that willingness. Because I can say I have the willingness Tuesday, but it's totally absent for me on Wednesday. <laughs> yeah. on Wednesday. And, and then, right. I, you know, okay, then I have to, okay, what's going on here? Uh-huh. You know, so it, it's just a constant willingness to engage with however it is at that moment. Uh, and whenever I've thought I've arrived somewhere, life will come along and, Say, buddy, you think you've arrived somewhere? Let me just show you exactly where you're at. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. something will happen that will show me exactly. Yeah, that mirror will show up. The mirror will always shows up, and it shows <laughs> yes. up pretty quickly. Yes. Um, all right. Well, uh, I want to close it down with one final question, yeah. which is, uh, if if you woke up in some bizarre parallel universe and found yourself to be uh, Surgeon General of the United States. Um, you know, understanding that the system is what it is and, and mm-hmm. is inherently limited in that regard, you know, where would your focus be placed in terms of, of 
changing policy and well, first of reframing all, legislation around recovery and, and I addiction. would pass a law. <laughs> I would pass a law that says it's illegal to use the word addict. That every time you wanted to use the word addict, instead you had to say he or she, you can't use as an addict, you'd have to say he or she is a human being who suffered immensely and has turned to substances or other behaviors to soothe their suffering. So that every time you, you thought of addiction or an addict, you had to frame it in those terms. Mm-hmm. No, that immediately that would, that would immediately transform the conversation, and it would immediately be self-evident of how destructive, inhumane, retrograde um, our current attitudes are and our current policies are. Uh, and when I say attitudes and policies, I mean the legal ones, the psychological ones and the medical ones. So we just have to reform the conversation. Right. Reframe the conversation. And you see, I don't really believe in... You you see, you can't legislate compassion. Uh, You can legislate cruelty, but you can't legislate compassion. So my... uh, In fact, I... I'm part of a new non-profit called Compassion for Addiction. And And I think that actually if we adopted that attitude of compassion and if we talked about it in the terms that I just outlined, we would have not only a much more fruitful approach to treating addiction, we'd also be a lot happier as a society because we'd be much more closer to who we really are, which is compassionate and and Mm social-minded. I love that. That's beautiful. Yeah. Thanks for talking to me today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, so many things that I had jotted down in my notebook here I wanted yeah. to talk to you about that we didn't even come <laughs> close to getting to. So uh, perhaps I can convince you to sit down with me at some future point and continue the conversation. Yeah, why don't we do that when my next book comes up? Uh, that would be great. Yeah. Happy, to, happy to do that. Um, yeah. I appreciate all the work that you're doing. It, it's making a, a, a large impact mm. and it is changing lives. And um, it's inspiring uh, to hear your message. And just thank you. Well, thanks so much. All right. Peace. Plants. Wow. That was, uh, that was intense. He doesn't mess about, does he? I feel like he went right to my heart, like he just penetrated <laughs> directly to my core. Uh, a very uh, pivotal conversation, I believe, in the evolution of my relationship with myself and my perception of my addiction. And I hope that you guys got something out of that, that you found it informative and instructive. He is an amazing guy. Um, very blessed to have spent that time with him. Uh, there were so many additional topics that I wanted to explore with him. We just didn't get to it. We didn't have the time. We didn't have the bandwidth. So hopefully I can convince him to sit down with me again. Uh, you can learn more about Dr. Mate at drgabormate.com. D-R-G-A-B-O-R-M-A-T-A.com. Tons of articles there on his website. Uh, Information about all of his upcoming appearance dates uh, are there if you want to see him in person, which I highly recommend. Uh, And please do yourself a favor and make a point of checking out Dr. Mate's books. Uh, I love In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction. Uh, That's perhaps my favorite of all of his books. It really speaks to me. His other books are called Scattered, How Attention Deficit Disorder Originates and What You Can Do About It, When the Body Says No, Exploring the Stress-Disease Connection, Uh, and he has a a fourth book called Hold On to Your Kids. All great books. Uh, I will put 
links to all of those books, plus a, a ton of additional articles, background, videos, and other materials and resources related to today's conversation, all up in the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. I put a ton of time into compiling these show notes, uh, as does my colleague Chris Swan. So please make a point of checking them out, read up, learn more, take your knowledge base and your podcast experience beyond the earbuds, right? That's what this is all about. Uh, I'm actually going to see uh, Dr. Mate in Los Angeles next week on Thursday, October 29th. He's doing an event with Ioni Sky, the actress. Uh, I'm not sure if there's still tickets, but if you're in LA and you're interested, uh, maybe check it out. Check out his appearances uh, page on his website. There's information there. And if there's tickets still available, maybe I'll see you there. Uh, if you happen to live in LA or your travels take you through that part of the world, maybe you're going to come into town to see Dr. Mate speak, uh, make a point of checking out a few of the businesses that I'm partnered with. Joy Cafe, it's our organic plant-based and gluten-free eatery in Westlake Village. You'll often see me eating lunch there pretty much every day when I'm in town. Uh, we're also partnered with the Karma Baker, which is a vegan and gluten-free bakery also located in Westlake Village. The podcast is a great way to serve the global community, and I'm very in touch with that right now, having just traveled through Europe and met so many podcast fans everywhere we went, uh, which is really quite extraordinary. But there is also something really special about being able to serve the local community where you live, and that's why I'm involved in these businesses. Uh, they're consistent with my values, and it feels really nice to kind of plant the seeds of the plant-based movement uh, in the area where you live. So that's what that's all about. I'm really proud to be associated with these companies. So again, if you're in L.A., go check them out. For all your plant power needs, visit richroll.com. Check out our new cookbook and lifestyle guide, The Plant Power Way. we got signed copies of that as well as signed copies of Finding Ultra. We've got Julie's guided meditation program, hot, it hot item lately. we got nutrition products, 100% organic cotton garments, plant power tech tees. we got sticker packs, temporary tattoos. we got limited edition art prints. Basically, all kinds of cool stuff to help you take your life and your health to the next level. Check out my online courses at mindbodygreen.com. Thank you for supporting the show, for telling your friends, for sharing it on social media, and for always using the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases. Thanks so much, you guys. I'm looking forward to uh, getting back home in a couple days. This has been a long time on the road, uh, and it's tough. It's tricky to try to put this podcast up twice a week when you're traveling and in different time zones and all of that. It's definitely not been easy, but I'm proud that I've been able to pretty much keep to the schedule and I am looking forward to so many great uh, conversations that I'm going to be bringing to you guys over the next couple of weeks. So thanks so much for taking this ride with me, and I'll see you guys soon. Peace. Plants.